What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are today so that the rest of us can learn from their example. In this episode, I'll be talking to Gareth and Jonathan Bull, they're the co-founders of an email marketing company called Email Octopus. Welcome to the show, guys. It's really great to have you. Why don't you introduce yourselves and let us know whose voice belongs to who? Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm Jonathan. This is my voice, uh, and I'm co-founder and director of Email Octopus. I'm Gareth, Gareth Bull, um, co-founder of Email Octopus as well. Um, I'm 25 years old, and we're both from London as well. I understand the two of you guys are brothers, which is pretty cool because I run Andy Hackers with my brother Channing. And Andy Hackers is owned by Stripe, which is run by two brothers, Patrick and John. And now I've got two brothers on my podcast running a business together. Yeah, hopefully uh, it's a winning formula for all that sakes. <laughs> so how did you, did you guys know from a young age that you wanted to work together on a business? I don't think we did. I think we both took quite separate paths into business and we both just ended up converging uh, around three or four years ago. For me, um, I always used to watch Jonathan. Weird, I used to watch Jonathan program and, and do stuff online even before you know any software. Or any, the internet was really big, and I was sort of inspired by that to do stuff online. And then, yeah, I sort of went my separate ways and, and started to do my own business things. And then Jonathan was just purely programming. And then I think we just sort of started to have this need for a product. And then, yeah, it sort of went from there. So I got to ask, what's the hardest part about working with your brother? <laughs> I'd love to hear both of your opinions on this. Well, the hardest part, I guess, of working with my brother came, it was probably about two or three years into Email Octopus, actually, when, when we started to get big and it was making good money and it started to mean something. At which point we realized we'd never really discussed equity or you know how we split our workloads. Yeah, that's an interesting time to start talking about that. Yeah, in hindsight, probably probably should have done that at the very beginning. Uh, and yeah, we, we had quite a few awkward conversations about that. I, I remember putting it off for quite a while. And Gareth, you just kept saying, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. Uh, and finally, finally, we managed to get over that hurdle, didn't we? What about you, Gareth? Yeah, I think that was pretty much the hardest thing. And it still is. You know, it's always a challenge. I think any co-founders, regardless of, I think even if your brother's, it actually makes it even harder because, you know, I know that he's always going to be my brother and we're always, we're not going to ever fall out. So it already makes it even more awkward. Like you just don't want to have that discussion. (laughs) And because it's such a cool project. Yeah, it's such a cool and fun project. And we're so in it all the time. Like it, unfortunately, that business side to it never really kicked in until we started to make you know, decent money. And then, you know, we had that conversation. But I think that's the main challenge any partners have is communication. And I think that's what we've learned. And, you know, moving forward, it's just about communicating with the co-founders together. The fact that you know that you're still brothers at the end of the day, and that no matter what gets said or what happens, you'll probably still have a working relationship afterwards is so interesting. And it's, it's really an advantage, I think, because it means you can have these contentious blow up fights and not have to worry about the other person just giving up and quitting. And in fact, you probably have years of experience of arguing with each other and knowing how to resolve things. Yeah, almost 20 years of that. Patrick from Stripe says the same thing about him and his brother John, actually. So I have to ask you guys, why email marketing? I mean, it's not a particularly sexy space to get into. It's, it's difficult, technically, and I'm sure you get blamed for all sorts of technical issues that aren't your fault. People's emails going to Gmail's promotions tab, etc. And worst of all, it's extremely crowded. I mean, you've got a ton of companies in this space, and you're pretty much going head-to-head with companies like MailChimp. So of all the things in the world that you could choose to do, 
why start an email marketing company? <laughs> it's, it's a very good question. And uh, I don't know about Gareth, but had I have known how difficult it would be sort of five years in, I probably never would have started it. I thought email was a lot easier than this. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Deliverability, uh, the infrastructure is very difficult to get right. And, and above all, it is an extremely crowded space. And we hear that a lot. A lot of people say, why did you enter the space of email marketing? But I, I kind of see it as, as the fact that it's such a massive market. There is room for us. Uh, there's room for plenty of competitors. And we're not necessarily out to sort of dominate it. Um, all we want to do is, is just make a sizable dent. I run a digital agency and I deal with different kind of businesses that are leveraging email marketing every day. And I kept seeing the problems they were having and also the price they were spending on their email marketing when their list started to get really big. So for me, I knew how big email marketing was and how many businesses sort of started to move around from MailChimp to Aweather to whoever. Um, so we felt like if we could just get an angle in there, you know, people would make the effort to move their list across to someone a little bit cheaper. And now because because we leverage Amazon SES and their um, their product of how they deliver emails, the deliverability can't really be beaten like Netflix and Uber are all sending emails via Amazon. So we let people do that via our platform. And you guys mentioned earlier that you, you guys both came into business from very different angles, you had different paths to get to where you are now. I'm curious what the story is behind how you guys ended up deciding to work on this together. Uh, sure. So my story, it probably starts quite a while ago when I was a young teenager. And um, I remember at the time I was sort of really interested in uh, two things, internet and uh, practical jokes. And I ended up creating a, a website which let people send SMS and email from, from anyone they want, uh, which at the time I thought was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and then when I was 17 or so, I, I monetized it and I was making a bit of money a week. I think I was making about $50 or so a week and I just got hooked on it and it ended up getting neglected when I went to uni. I had a lot more fun things to do, but it slowly built and built in the background uh, until I ended up closing it just because I wasn't really happy with the, uh, the kind of messages that were going through the service and we got banned by PayPal a few times. It was a problematic service to run, as you can imagine. Uh, so, so I guess that's how I got the itch, the itch for business and the itch for having a side project that made money. It was based in email. So I guess that's quite a natural segue into email octopus. Yeah, for me, um, as I said, I always saw Jonathan programming and I thought how clever Jonathan was. And I, it was frustrating for me to see how what products he could build and what difference he could make. He didn't necessarily understand how to market it and find people to use it. And it's just a different brain. Um, so I started sort of, I just started my digital agency, you know, to find businesses and help them drive traffic. And I sort of started to get into affiliate marketing. And then, yeah, my agency sort of grew from there. And I started to understand, you know, different kinds of marketing, email, SEO, PPC, etc. cetera. Um, and then, you know, I tried to use MailChimp or whatever, and the price was getting really high for my clients. So we just thought, I said to Jonathan, is there a better way of doing this? You know, it's got so costly at the higher tier um, when you've got a big list. And that was frustrating for me to see. And I said to Jonathan, and we both sort of came at the same point and said, let's try it. And, um, and then the story sort of starts from there, really. 
So did you guys have a, a grand strategy early on? Because I know a lot of companies will start and think, all right, here's our, our five-year business plan. We're going to write down everything about why this company is going to work, why this idea can succeed, how big it's going to get, when we're going to hire. Are we guys sort of like, let's take a few steps and then and see what happens? Yeah, I think that one is, I see that time and time again. And even back then, even if I started a business today, you know, you, you can plan as much as possible, but it, it, you just don't see things along the road that you can't plan for, and especially when you're building software like I mean, Jonathan's been coding this along with a couple of developers for, for years now, and it's like, you just can't plan things. But yeah, I think we would have planned it a lot better, definitely. In hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. But I don't know what Jonathan thinks of that. Yeah, the, the first time we actually sat down and drew up a business plan was uh, summer this year, which was about three years in. <laughs> uh, it always it always just it, it never really uh felt necessary and full credit to our coo for prompting us to do that but up until then we'd seen a nice amount of growth month on month and we felt like we were doing all right just winging it uh i guess the question is could we have done better not winging it and having a plan and the answer is probably yes <laughs> i think that's always true for every company for sure Let's talk about the early days. What were the first steps you guys took to getting Email Octopus off the ground once you agreed that it was something you want to work on? Uh, so I guess the very first step was uh, coming up with a name, which took far too long. So it's the hardest part, right? Yeah. <laughs> I spent a few days coming up with a name for indie hackers, so I, I know what it feels like. <laughs> if, if I wish we'd have spent a few days. Uh, I think it took us about a month, maybe two months to come up with a name. Oh, wow. We had some really bad names. Do you remember how many names you considered? Uh, probably probably about 10 or so names made the cut. It was that horrible thing where you come up with the perfect name and then you type it into Namecheap or whatever you use to buy domains and you find out that it's taken and then you think, do I go with the IO or do I go with Get, get Email Octopus? But we never really wanted to do that. Um, at one point, it was going to be called Mass SES with with about four S's. Uh, I'm so glad we didn't go with that. <laughs> and eventually, eventually, Email Octopus uh, came to us. And I remember I, I was sort of adamant about not even starting coding until we had that name. I think that's probably quite a classic trait amongst programmers. Well, yeah, because you put the name everywhere in your code and you're like, I don't want to have to go back and change this, change the name of my repository change all my variable names like you don't want to you really don't want to do that exactly yeah but yeah i had i had gareth in my other ear telling me just to start coding <laughs> so a month goes by you guys come up with the name email octopus how much time passes between starting and finding your first real paying customer or your first user so we had so we then had about six months of me coding email octopus in what was my favorite program programming language at the time then I decided I didn't want to use that anymore. So I did another six months of programming in a completely different language. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, I, think it was, I think it was about a year later we, we launched. We came out of private beta around end of, end of 2014. And Gareth, what were you doing this entire time when Jonathan is writing and then rewriting this app? This is um, something that, you know, I think... It, in hindsight, I would have done exactly the same again, which is weird because even looking back, I would have done exactly the same tactic. Um, back then, we were going through MailChimp's followers and I was looking at sort of the people that could be slightly influencer-based or um, that could be using us in the future. So I started to follow them and tweet them and mention that we've got 
um, a product coming soon. And the way that we pitched it was um, email Octopus for a fraction of the price of MailChimp. And it was straight away they got a follow from us. We had the branding there. We had the landing page. We got their email. And then when Jonathan had finished the beta version, the first version, on that day, I remember looking at Google Analytics and seeing like two, 300 people on the site. And we had about 2,000, um, I think we had 2,000 pre-signups ready f- to launch on that day. And I think that's the massive lesson we, you know, learn and i see that quite a lot in in startups they they write code for months and months and then launch and then have a, an amazing launch and then what think where are my users gone or where are they which is quite funny but <laughs> the trough of sorrow i mean it happens it's happened to every single thing that i've worked on where that launch boost you know of, of traffic just is impossible to sustain for the next few months and it's, it's pretty depressing i really want to dive into this 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 whole idea of building an audience before you launch because i think it's something uh, that you rightly point out, a lot of people don't do a great job of, and that it sounds like you guys really killed it. How did you get hundreds of people uh, onto your site the first day that you launched? And how did you get you know two thousand people on your mailing list? Well, it was the pre-launch. It was the um, it was getting people excited. Um, I think people people do get excited when you have a different angle in the market and you've compared. Like we compared ourselves to Mailchimp. We said we we're a fraction of the price of Mailchimp. We were leveraging their brand to try and push ours. And I think it was the only way to get any sort of attention quickly. And then then we had that list ready to launch on launch day, which really helped us. And what kind of places were you going to find people who were interested in, you know, a MailChimp competitor for a fraction of the cost? So we did a bit of Google AdWords, which was really helpful. Um, we were just looking at sort of keywords that people were typing in, MailChimp alternative, um, you know, Amazon SES um, providers. And then also looking through their Twitter. Um, I actually, I remember looking at people that are disgruntled with MailChimp um, and getting frustrated. And I said, why not try Email Octopus? We've just launched. It's a little like, uh, people call it growth hacks, but it's just pretty simple marketing that, worked really well back then. I think Twitter now is is quite overloaded with a lot of stuff and it's quite hard to get people's attention now. But Google AdWords really helped us back then and Twitter. Yeah, more than a few of the guests that I've had on in the past have talked about this phenomenon of distribution channels sort of reaching the saturation point where they're no longer as profitable as they used to be. And how like it's it's better off if you can find like these nascent distribution channels before they really take off and get on there when ads are super cheap or when it's really easy to reach your audience. So like, if we're talking about AdWords, David Hauser of Grasshopper is a good example. He was, I think, buying ads on Google in the early 2000s when it cost him pennies to access, uh, to get in front of thousands of users. So I kind of wonder what you guys would do today if you had to reinvent yourself. Is there any new channel that's like kind of in its early stages that you would target to get the word out about Email Octopus? Yeah, it's a lot harder when our price point is, is quite low. You know, when you're providing a, a low product um, in software and when you're in email marketing, people have to move their whole list across to you. It's not a quick transaction. You're not buying something, um, a one-off. It's quite a long time for people to convert. So today we still do paid Google ads. Um, we do a lot more branding stuff now. So talking about our story just like this and um, you know, blogging around our story and our startup and um, how we're helping other businesses. I think that's really helped us. Um, and I think Jonathan's enjoyed doing help in that side of the marketing as well, not necessarily just pushing ads to people and stuff like that. I don't know. Jonathan's thoughts on that would be interesting. 
Yeah, my, my favorite sort of marketing at the moment is side project marketing. So actually giving people something. For example, uh, in November last year, uh, we got to the front page of Product Hunt with quite a simple email template pack, uh, which ended up being downloaded, I think, by about 2,000 people. Uh, one of them was, was Uber. And that's just consistently given us about 10 leads a day now. So when you say email template pack, you mean like the HTML code for actually sending an email, like the styling and, and what it looks like. And Uber is using this. Exactly, yeah. We haven't actually seen them use it yet, but we know they downloaded it. <laughs> That's crazy. I think this whole idea of side project marketing is super interesting, and I, I want to get into it, but I think it comes a little bit later in your story, so let's, let's table it for a second. And Jonathan, I want to ask you about like, these early months of development, because I know a lot of companies die before they ever launch, and a lot of them die for reasons that you seem to have, like, I guess, ignored, because it takes them too long to get their first product out, and they lose motivation. How did you push through this year-long development process without getting discouraged? Yeah, I, I actually came really close to giving up. Um, it, was, it was Gareth who sort of motivated me saying, you know, we're just saying all the right things. We need to get this out. We need to try it. Don't give up until we've at least got this in front of people. Uh, but it was, a, it was a real slog. And I was doing it alongside a quite a demanding full-time job. So it's taken up my evenings and weekends. Uh, and... Yeah, it was tough. Um, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I enjoy programming, and that would probably be my hobby, even even if I didn't have sort of financial motivations behind it. Yeah, I think that's like the best hack is to actually love what you're doing, at least to some small degree. Otherwise, it's going to be painful the whole way. And then having a co-founder for sure is helpful because you're not just giving up on yourself; you'd be giving up on this other person who you agreed to work with, and it's much it's a much harder thing for people to do. I think exactly. And and time, like you say, time and time again, people give up before they even get it out there. And uh, that's perhaps because they're perfectionists, um, which I certainly am. And Gareth uh, wouldn't mind me saying that he's uh, less so. And he, he was like, let's just get it out there. Um, it probably wasn't even good enough to be called an MVP at the time. It didn't really do anything. So what, what did it do? Launch day, you know, what, what can I use Email Octopus for? You couldn't even import your subscriber list, so you had to add every subscriber manually for starters, which was a bit of a barrier to entry. Uh, so after they'd gone through that process, which probably took them about 10 hours, uh, they'd finally be able to send them a large email blast, and that was, that was pretty much it. Um, but, but people were using it, surprisingly. Yeah, it was frustrating, but I'm I'm very optimistic, and um, I, I always think there's something in something. And I was, you know, there's so much, so many people out there that are using awful products. And I thought, if people are using our product that people can't even import pe- subscribers into, then we must be onto a winner. I think straight away people mentioned about the simplicity of it, um, and you know, we didn't even mention pricing on, you know, our, when we, people were trying it in beta. Um, so it was just pe- people using it for free for, for quite a long time, weren't they, Jonathan, I think? Yeah, how long was that? Perhaps almost a year, I think, we were completely free. Wow, that's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. So I guess yeah, that's... I, know. <laughs> I mean, that's like, am I correct in assuming that being free was an integral part of your strategy? Because I, it might have been hard to compete otherwise as like a brand new entrant in this crowded market. Yeah, and it worked really well. It's so easy to, to sell, sell perhaps the wrong word in this instance, uh, but get people using a product that is free. That is free. Um, so one of our 
largest uh, sources of acquisition was a Reddit post being like, I've made this as a side project, uh, it's completely free, uh, send, send all your emails, no cost whatsoever, check us out. And that was huge, that blew up for us. There's no way that was your long-term plan, though, because how do you how do you guys make money with a free product? I'm sure you're at this point just hemorrhaging money. How did you guys decide that you know launching with free was a good way to go, and what was your plan for how you would eventually start charging? Well, uh, I guess it goes back to us not really having a plan uh, in terms of losing money. It was very it was very hard to quantify because it was my personal time, and when it's your personal time, you don't really think of it as as an hourly rate. Well, I certainly didn't. I guess uh, in the back of our minds, we just thought that we'd be able to switch on the paid plans and people would love us so much that they'd just instantly switch over. Uh, but that didn't really go to plan either. Yeah, I think that that's pretty much, he's nailed pretty much everything there. I think, yeah, when we did launch the paid plans, I think Jonathan's got the exact timeline, but it was, um, yeah, we launched the paid plans and I think 99% of all our users disappeared. Was that right, Jonathan? Yeah, that was right. That was not a nice day. <laughs> That's really terrible. Yeah. How did, how did that <laughs> yeah. That was pretty horrific. <laughs> pretty horrific. <laughs> Free users come to a product for a very different reason than paid customers come, right? And they'll even give you different feedback as the type of features that they want. So, you know, on one hand, it was, it was terrible. I'm sure to lose 99% of your customers. But on the other hand, it's probably what you guys needed to start building the right product and targeting the right types of people who are actually going to pay you money so you can sustain this product. I think, I think you're right. Um, if we look at the positives, I guess we, we got a great deal of motivation from people just using it, free or otherwise. Uh, it, was, it was a great way to sort of test our infrastructure and just get eyeballs on the site. But ultimately, you're, you're totally right. We weren't ever validating the correct business model there. And, and we did literally just have to start that all over again once we launched those paid plans. Yeah, but regardless, you guys have come a long way since then and definitely a long way since the beginning. I mean, you guys are now running a profitable bootstrapped business. And Jonathan, you mentioned that early on you were just working nights and weekends, pretty much just your spare time whenever you could to get the product at the door. Did you guys know from early on that you wanted to bootstrap this business rather than raising money from investors? If so, how did you make that decision? And how did you know, that constraint affect your strategies and, and, and the way that you ran Email Octopus? Well, firstly, it's a lot easier, right? It's much easier to just get started with a side project in your spare time than it is to get investment. I can't even imagine how hard that process would be running it alongside a normal job. So personally, that never crossed my mind. For me, it was um, I always thought of software as a service and um, the software business as, I mean, back then there wasn't as many people just raising money with crazy ideas, um, which is quite glamorous now to do. But for me, we treated it as a normal business. Like we started it from the ground up. We didn't want people pecking at us. Um, you know, why haven't you done this? And having external investors is great on paper, and it and it's celebrated um, to raise money. But for us, it was keep it lean. And and I knew that all we needed to do was get get both of us, you know, working on it all the time. And that's what we what we achieved. Um, and it went from there really. I've been reading this book called uh, The Everything Store. It's about Jeff Bezos and the founding of Amazon and how he's grown into this you know, ridiculously huge company that it is today. And one of their big things as well is to be extremely frugal because the sort of flywheel that Amazon operates on uh, depends on, on having extremely low prices so they can get more customers to the site, et cetera, et cetera. 
And it strikes me as like, you know, obviously at a much smaller scale, similar to what you guys are doing. You guys are trying to uh, bring email marketing to more people by offering much lower prices. How does that affect the way that you guys actually run your company? Does that mean that you need to, you know, not hire people? Or does that mean that, you know, there are features that you can't build? Definitely. Um, Every time we build a new feature, we have to think about how we're going to offer it under our price model. Um, There are, you know, often a hundred ways you can do something and the quickest way is very rarely the cheapest. And so many, I've lost count of the amount of times we've had to rewrite something just because it's perhaps storing too much data or storing data in an inefficient way. So that's always at the forefront of our minds. Yeah, I think think, um, when we first started to see income, um, we immediately hired Tom, our COO, which is quite a, an odd strategy, you know, looking back in theory, but straight away, the money went back into the company of developing, you know, he used to work at Secret Escapes, they were huge in email marketing and still are. And that experience came straight over to us and, you know, catapulted us and made us take things more seriously. And it was just that, that nod of approval um, from someone else. And yeah, that went from there, really. I was going to say, uh, it's worth noting that I didn't actually want to hire a COO at that point. I was very adamant on it, only ever sort of being a side project and keeping our cash, being a nice little bump for us at the end of the month. Um, but Gareth Gareth knew this guy, Tom. He knew he could be great for us. And uh, yeah, I've been, I've been proven totally wrong on that. It's been absolutely fantastic. Tell me more about this, this difference in visions, because I think viewing this thing as a side project and viewing it as a business that can grow to something big is, is a very opposite ends of the spectrum. How did you guys resolve that? It took a while. Um, yeah, I was, I was in a very comfortable job at the time that I was enjoying. And uh, while my dream was always to run my own business and, and have my own thing going on, uh, I never really wanted it to be, I never really, I guess I never really wanted to manage people and run a company. I just wanted to program, get features out, make a nice bit of money. That was my aim, really. Uh, Gareth was very different. Yeah, for, for, for me, I was already running a, a business that was employing people and I saw the massive value of that. And I sort of made sure that I kept pounding that down Jonathan's throat and saying, you know, we need to hire Tom, we need to actually, this is a serious product because the product needs to do as well as it should, like the product deserves people to use it and, you know, when people were using it, they were loving it and for it just to be a side project and, yeah, it was frustrating to see but I think that's the, why a co-founder and a programmer and a marketer works really well um, and we're both completely different, like in every shape, way or form in business um, but that's why I guess it works. I think the difference personally was that I was happy with any kind of growth and we were seeing what I considered a nice amount of growth and and you Gareth uh, disagreed right you wanted a lot more growth and that's been great for us yeah Jonathan were you afraid that hiring someone would rock the boat and maybe you know ruin the kind of growth that you were already seeing or was it more that you just didn't want to commit as much time and effort as you know, would be required if you wanted to start growing the company and bringing on employees. So my end goal was was for it to be my full-time project. And I guess I thought that hiring people makes that quite a lot riskier. As soon as you've got, you know, sort of consistent outgoings in your business, then you always have to be making a profit, right? There's a lot more responsibility, basically. Yeah, there's a ton of responsibility. 
I totally can identify with the <laughs> uh, reluctance to bring other people on and to be responsible now for, you know, in some ways their career and, and for certainly like their paycheck. Exactly. And you have to start doing all this boring stuff like uh, employment law and tax and. Uh huh. And then, and more meetings too, because now it's not just the two of you guys as brothers who probably speak, you know, each other's language without having to say too many words. But now you've got another person in. So you've got to make all sorts of decisions that are, you know, I guess there's a lot more friction when you start growing your company. Did you guys feel like you slowed down at all or did hiring Tom uh, speed things up? We, we sped up so much. It was, it was the best decision we ever did. Nice. What are some of the things that Tom did to help you guys grow and move faster? Well, Tom, like Gareth said, Tom came from a great marketing background, so he had a really good uh, perspective on where we should take the business. And to be honest, his best achievements in the first three months were just to bring a, a fresh set of eyes. Um, we were doing a lot of things quite stupidly, like we were handed in email support just over email and we were missing tickets. And just the small things that you should be doing as a business when you take it more seriously, uh, we weren't doing. And Tom and, and having the responsibility that I mentioned a bit earlier really motivated us to, to do all of those things right. Garrett, did he free you up at all? Because it sounds, sounds like a lot of what Tom was doing was potentially overlapping with some of the things that you were working on. Yeah, he did free me up, but it was more, I, I've, I've known Tom for quite a while. I knew that we both have different skill sets, and I always think two marketers can can complement each other much more than just one. And, you know, it's you sort of start to run out of de- ideas for certain things or you see things differently. And I think I looked at Secret Escapes and how quickly they grow. They grew, and Tom was one of the first employees, you know, I think one of the first 10 or 20, and that straight away, you know, I don't know how many there are now, but they're a very big company. And that was purely from email marketing. And I thought if he could do that for someone else, um, we could give him that opportunity. And he, I think he wanted a sort of secret escapes outgrew him as well. And he wanted a new opportunity. So it not only worked really well for us, it really worked for him. And he wanted that excitement again. So it sort of, yeah, worked out really well. Yeah, that sounds like the perfect situation where you actually know somebody personally who would be the perfect fit for that role rather than having to go out and hire a bunch of unknown people and have no idea how they're going to perform and you know potentially deal with you know bringing on someone who's going to not work out. Yeah, I mean I've had experience of that and a mishire can be massive and you know if we mishired first um not only would it cost us a lot of money it would have put Jonathan off as well and it would have been hard for me to convince Jonathan that having an employee was going to help us so because Tom was so helpful for us and we knew him as you're right you're right there it it was a really comfortable hire for Jonathan as well I think in the end absolutely so I watched uh, Tom give a talk on email octopus and one of the cool things that he brought up was this problem that you guys had I think around like the middle of like 2015 uh, or maybe 2016 of growing a lot but also having to deal with this, this spam problem. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on what happened? Yeah, that was that was a frustrating summer. Uh, I didn't go out much that that summer. <laughs> uh, yeah, so our volume I think it quadrupled almost overnight, and we were we were always busy working on other things. At that point, we weren't really looking at our key metrics, and suddenly everything started breaking. We were like, "What's going on?" And, and we looked in the database and there was just a huge amount of spam going through our platform. Uh, so it was sort of all hands on deck to try and stop that. And, and by that point, I think it was about, it probably took us one or two months to notice 
which is a mistake we'd never make again. And by that point, we'd got very used to the extra amount of income that was coming in from these spammers. So I think we ended up, yeah, so I think we ended up just taking about a, a hit of about a third on our revenue overnight when we realised, which was very frustrating. Yeah, I, I think again, that's Tomic's. You know, if that happened to me and Jonathan, um, and Tom wasn't on the project, I think me and Jonathan would have just kept trying to deal with all these spammers. And you know, we got mentioned on black hat forums and stuff, um, and I kept seeing us on there. And I was, you know, you always think good. You always think growth is good growth, but Tom started to say that you know this is really not working. We need to. As Jonathan said, you know, that summer was hard for him and, and we sort of started to get finding filters and a bit of AI to get rid of those people on our platform. And, and we always saw the long-term benefits of that in our mind, but in practicality terms, it's so tempting not to get rid of users that are paying you money, especially when we had Tom at the time as well. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I think there's so many like long-term, short-term trade-offs and every business is is life where you have to deal with situations where it's like, ah, if we if we stop doing this right now, we're gonna lose money overnight. And you know, maybe theoretically it'll be good in the long term, but ah, I don't what about the money right now? Yeah, it was it was it was tough. We had a lot of discussions about that. Um, but on the plus side it was it was a great test of the infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, I guess it must have been. And I, I assume that the spammers liked you guys because you guys are just so cheap. I mean if you're trying this in spam you don't know how much money you're going to make from it. You might as well choose the cheapest possible option. Exactly, yeah. And and to explain a bit more, without getting into too much detail about how it works, it plugs into Amazon Web Services. And we Amazon Web Services do their own amount of verification on their clients as well. And, and we hoped that that was enough, uh, but it wasn't. So now we also verify. So I've had something similar happen with ND Hackers, actually. Back in September, I noticed there's like a huge jump in traffic to the ND Hackers forum. And I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. So after some investigation, I realized it was all coming from Google. And these spammers had managed to create threads on the Indie Hackers forum that would rank extremely highly in Google for things like live sports streaming, et cetera. And they were driving more traffic to Indie Hackers' site than I've ever been able to drive by myself <laughs> just by making a forum post. So I was simultaneously like disappointed when I figured out where the traffic was coming from, but also impressed that they... Uh, we're such masters of, of yeah, they're quite clever. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you do have to have a certain amount of respect for these these people. <laughs> so after cutting the spammers out of your guys' platform, what were some of the next steps you guys took to grow and kind of recover from that loss? Was this when you started the side project marketing, or did that come later on? Uh, we've not quite gotten to that point yet. Um, I think just after the spammers, uh, we ended up growing quite nicely, just just very naturally and organically. We were taking on more clients. Uh, we were trying to focus at the upper end, so we were taking on people with bigger lists. Uh, and at that point, we realized we'd probably taken on too many people for, for the infrastructure we had. It was, again, creaking. So what we actually did then was we tried to slow down the growth by putting our prices up, which was perhaps <laughs> a strange move. And we actually raised the prices um, because, yeah, at the start, even when we're offering free, we're attracting the spammers. And then it was cheap, like ridiculously cheap. We were still getting the spammers. So the best way was to increase our infrastructure. We also had a couple of external devs, and one of them now works for us full time, which is cool. Um, so just creating that infrastructure ready for the real big companies that actually really wanted to use us. So we just sort of cut the fat off um, to increase 
in the way of increasing our prices and making sure that our infrastructure was ready to scale. So, yeah, we're constantly working on that. It definitely attracted a higher class of, of user, didn't it, when we put those prices up? Definitely. Um, and it didn't, it didn't even slow down our growth. It, we actually ended up making more money by doubling our prices, which was, which was nice, but <laughs> didn't really solve the infrastructure problem. So, again, a lot of late nights. That's funny because I would like, think based on your business model and based on the industry that you guys are in, your main differentiator was price. Why do you think people kept using you? In fact, maybe even use you more once you started raising the prices. Well, I, I think there's still so much room. We went from being probably up to a tenth of the price of Mailchimp to about a fifth of the price of Mailchimp. So even though we doubled, we were still so much cheaper than the competition. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily just price that people were coming to us for. They were coming to us because we were super simple. A lot of people liked that we were a small business and we were always personally replying to emails. Yeah, I think simplicity was key. For my clients, um, when they started to use it, they kept saying, oh, it's so simple. Like, you can just open it up, send out an email. And, you know, they weren't having complicated autoresponders. They just wanted something really light, you know, for the sort of SME market and they wanted something so simple and we provided that and then you can plug it into a well it plugs into AWS Amazon services and you can send amazing deliverable you know the emails are just going to deliver every time and give your email the best chance of delivering so at this point you've got prices that are going up but still extremely cheap compared to the competition you've got uh, more users than you really can even handle even with Jonathan working on it I think, were you, you full-time yet, Jonathan, or were you still part-time? Uh, it was around that time I went full-time. I had to. <laughs> yeah. What did it feel like to make that decision to quit your job? I mean, even if you had to, uh, I imagine it, it might have been nerve-wracking, or was it a pretty straightforward decision for you? It was slightly nerve-wracking. Uh, you probably noticed I was slightly risk-averse at the time, and I think I'd just sort of taken a mortgage out on my London flat. Uh, property is not cheap here. And... The timing wasn't perfect, but I guess I guess it never is. And in a way, it was really nice to to have to make that move rather than just continue to put it off, as I'm sure I would have done. If you guys don't mind sharing, how much revenue were you generating around this time? We had around 200 users at the time and were taking about $3,000 a month. Cool. So it was like enough to keep the lights on and really sustain you guys. It was enough to sustain us. It was It was enough to pay my mortgage as well, which was the main thing for me. All right. So... At this point, you're full-time. You've got these developers that you're paying on the side to kind of help you out. Gareth, are you full-time on, on Email Octopus as well, or are you still splitting your time between Email Octopus and your other business? Yeah, I, I split my time. Um, Jonathan has spent a ridiculous amount of time on Email Octopus, and it was always his baby. Um, and I always I had my own business before Email Octopus, and you know, I really wanted Jonathan to have his own business because I thought he deserves it. And if I could find a way of helping him um, on a day-to-day -day basis and my team can help Email Octopus, it sort of works really well. And yeah, so I probably split my son, you know, 40, 60, um, 40 on Email Octopus, 60 on Bulldog. Um, but me learning stuff in, in other markets really helps Email Octopus, I think, moving forward. Um, I see a lot of businesses fail. I see a lot of businesses do really well through email and through other channels that can help us and I can see the opportunities out there because I think for the startup world it's very people read the headlines and they see lots of different stuff about um, 
you know, growth hacking and all stuff like that. And, and most of that stuff's been around for quite a long, ta- a long time, as you know. Um, I think the startup world's quite different to the world that I'm in. Um, I sort of deal with UK SMEs, um, a million dollar a year sort of clients, and the startup world is, they, they don't ever talk about stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's a good, I think it's a good experience for both of us anyway. Do you think the insights and the habits that you bring to your startup coming from maybe a more grounded place where revenue obviously and always matters uh, has been helpful in growing email octopus? Yeah, I think um, I think in the startup world, um, I mean, even when you said when you launched Indie Hackers, you were quite you weren't really sure whether to get anyone in. And in the real in the real world, I think that the way that I operate, I'm like, how can I automate this? How can I grow this business without me? And to- getting Tom in was helping that growth, whilst Jonathan was working on the back end infrastructure. So that's all the way I always think, really. Um, and I saw a lot of tasks that. Jonathan was doing like support tickets and stuff that he shouldn't be doing like that should be someone else and um, because Jonathan's skill set is being a ridiculously good programmer and, and that's what he enjoys so he should be doing that every day. Jonathan are you happier when you're programming are you happier when you kind of put on your founder hat and dive into these new things that you're maybe less comfortable with? I am I am my most happy and probably my most comfortable programming um, but I am really enjoying the experience of, of running the business. I think I've probably learned more sort of in the last three or six months than I did in sort of five years of dev jobs. Uh, so if, if anyone was looking to sort of take the jump, I'd always highly recommend it. Yeah, it's pretty cool when you realize that you're learning faster because you've been sort of thrown in the deep end where everything is new and therefore everything you do requires you to learn. And it's definitely a good sign, especially if you're newer, when your recent decisions look like mistakes because you've learned so much since you made them. Yeah, you really notice when you go through things like this, uh, like in our prep for this, we're writing down our timeline and you know our mistakes. And just looking back on the decisions I made seem crazy with the knowledge I've now gained. So what are some of these things that you guys have learned and would do completely differently nowadays? I think side projects were very tempting to do a lot. Um, we've done a couple, some have worked really well. Um, and I think it's quite easy to take our eye off the ball. We've maybe took our eye off the ball in certain aspects, but they still can work so well. Um, but focus is is super key for us. We, if you know, we have sort of diversified sometimes, and we're like, no, email marketing is what we're good at. We want to deliver the best product to our customers, and and always remember that we've got customers that are paying our wages every month, and we need to look after them as much as possible. It's not all about how can we get more customers in the top line. Like, how can we? How can we do more for our customers and how can they deliver better emails? Can we help them in other ways um, as well? I think that's an interesting point because even if your goal is growth, often the best way to do that is to focus on retention and engagement, getting your uh, existing customers and users to keep coming back and keep paying you. And it's pretty easy to understand why because if you imagine pouring water into a leaky bucket, the water level is not going to grow very fast, if at all. At the same time, retention is one of the most off-neglected metrics, especially for new founders to pay attention to, but I've been guilty of neglecting it, even while running indie hackers. Has retaining your customers and getting them coming back been a challenge with growing Email Octopus? And if so, what kinds of things have you guys done to, to work on that? It's definitely something we are working on at the moment. It's, it's so easy, isn't it, to forget your customers who have been with you for two years because the noisiest ones are always the newest. And 
recently we've been trying to do case studies, reach out to these customers, find out actually how they're using Email Octopus and seeing what we can learn from them. And in some cases it's too late. Um, but hopefully going forward we can put an established process in place where we, we sort of start that conversation as soon as we can. Yeah, I would definitely say don't be afraid to reach out to your customers. Like, um, It's amazing what feedback you get from them. You know, we've had people email us like essays of, of feedback just from us asking. And that if we didn't ask, they never would have sent us that. And um, I think we've learned that over the last three or four months more than ever, I think. So another cool thing about, I think, doing startups is besides just learning from your own experiences, a lot of other people have written books uh, they've written blog posts and guides about how they've grown their own startups. And obviously, it's you know easier to read what they've done and learn from their mistakes than to go through your own you know sort of miserable path of experiences and having to rederive everything that they've already learned. Are there any books or any you know role models that you guys follow in, in building email octopus and in learning how to run your business? I've read read quite a few of these books that have been recommended and they've never really worked so well for me. And I think the most valuable thing I've found is just working alongside other bootstrappers. So very early on in sort of the email octopus journey, I rented an office uh, with two other guys who uh, also were running their own side projects. And the amount, the amount I learned from that was so invaluable. Every single problem I was hitting, they'd already encountered. And it was so nice to just have that instant dialogue with someone. So, yeah, for, for me, there's nothing better than having sort of a face-to-face mentor. So were you going home after work to this, well, not going home, but going to this office that you rented and working there after work, or was this after you had gone full-time? Uh, so there was a small period where I sort of transitioned, where I was, I was part-time on one job, part-time on email octopus. So every hour I could, I was trying to get in a space. Uh, I was going to all the meetups with these guys um, because... At the time, I didn't feel there was much out there for us. Every every article I was reading was about investment and VCs, and I never really read much about you know the little guy who wanted to turn his side project into a full time job. And it was really inspirational to meet some other people who were actually doing that and succeeding. What about you, Gareth? Do you have any role models or any people that you learn from or resources that are, are particularly helpful? Yeah, sure. Um, well, obviously, indie hackers. Actually, yeah, I think I actually saw a tweet today. I think someone tweeted you. They said it's nice to see not the mainstream entrepreneurs on indie hackers. Like it, it is a different angle. So I really do, I do like that. Um, I do like to read indie hackers. Um, hey, in general, thanks. I've read a couple of good books. <laughs> no problem. Um, Breeding gazelles is a good book. It sort of talks about. I'll just to give you a very quick overview. It talks about what it takes to get to, you know, half a million dollars. Is completely different to what it takes to get from half a million dollars to a million dollars. So, I think I've I've sort of pushed that into the business and saying that we need to do stuff differently all the time. You know what worked. You know during the early days we did the Twitter growth hack or, or marketing uh, tactic, and that wouldn't work today. And it's easy to get caught up in trying those old tactics, and uh, it's just not going to work. So I think just constantly evolving your marketing. Um, and your product is is crucial, but we don't, you know, we do we do keep an eye on the market, but we don't get obsessed by our competitors, and we don't really follow tons of entrepreneurs because there's only so much learning you can do, right? 
I wonder, like, did you guys decide to start things like side project marketing because the things you were doing in the past had, had kind of stopped working and you wanted an extra boost? Yeah, I think I think they are. And Tom Tom brought those ideas to the table. Really, it wasn't. We I don't think me and Jonathan even thought about them. Really, it wasn't. I think that's right, Jonathan. Yeah, it is right. And I, I was sort of hearing both sides. I was hearing Gareth, who's come from an SEO and uh, ad spend background, and Tom, who comes from perhaps a more growth growth hacker background. Uh, and I, I very much favoured the side projects. Uh, not saying that they necessarily work better than the ads. Um, but I, I really like the fact that we were sort of giving something back. Uh, we were we were providing something for people to, to click and check out our site. Yeah, I also think if you're a programmer, like if your strength and your actual interests lie with building, you know, useful tools, especially small, simple tools that you can easily get out the door, then doing something like side project marketing where you're actually building tools is going to be a lot more enjoyable as well, which means you'll probably be more effective at it because you're going to, you know, be enthusiastic about what you're working on. Exactly. It's, it's a lot more fun knowing that someone's using your templates than, than having clicked the link on an ad. Yeah, side project marketing feels like something that was invented by programmers who don't want to do, you know, quote unquote, real marketing. They're like, oh, here's how you can build features and get more people in the door. But it works remarkably well uh, in many cases. So you guys are bootstrapped, you're profitable now, but what are your long-term goals? I mean, you're definitely uh, trying to grow the company and build revenue, but to what end? Where do you see yourselves five or 10 years from now if things go according to plan? Uh, so I guess our main goal is is revenue. We only, like I hinted to before, we only actually decided these goals a few months ago. Uh, but our main one is to reach a million dollars annual revenue by the end of next year. We charge in dollars though, so who knows uh, what Brexit is going to do to that aim. Right. Yeah, so we want to get, I think revenue is great and that's one of our targets. Another target for us is getting into the habit of spending money, which is really easy not to do. Um, especially as a startup and you know being bootstrapped to this point you know we've got overheads now we've got an office we've got um, developers um, so now we we've put a, you know enough spend aside to just say we're going to spend it on marketing um, any products we want to launch like side projects yeah so just putting money aside for us over the next year is going to be really important and putting that all back into the business what if email octopus was making like I don't know some some incredibly high number like ten million dollars a year, and you guys are beyond the level of financial success that you even thought possible when you first started? What would you do? It would be it would be very different, uh, certainly. What would we do? Um, I've always got the the mentality that we like Eric, that we shouldn't hold our money and we should reinvest it back into the business. Well, that's certainly the mentality I've had for the last year or so. Uh, truly, I don't really know what we'd even begin to spend that money on. It's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy, and it's a, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I think if the revenue was, if we were like tripling revenue every month, you know, I think we'd start to really start to get, you know, poach people from other companies, or we do, you know, we try and get some real people in, you know. I don't know, maybe launch a US office and try and find some talent over there. Maybe do something completely different to really scale the company, you know, build um, a really great team, sort of like the intercom sort of route, maybe, you know, something really big. But when, you know, we're not shooting for the stars at the minute, we're just, you know, we're being very patient with building the product and um, and also the revenue. We're not, 
we're not in the game of of taking ridiculously high risk because also when you're tripling revenue at that pace um you know it's easy to make some massive mistakes um like yeah we don't want to put the business in jeopardy basically i think both of your answers are revealing because you would take the money and reinvest it into email octopus which means that email octopus is kind of your top priority like growing this particular business is what you really want to do Whereas I think a lot of other people might take that money and invest in a completely different business or a passion project. Or they might say, screw that, $10 million a year, I'm going to live on a beach somewhere, I'm done running this thing. It's, yeah, it's very tempting. And I think, I think in my head, I always had this figure of reaching $100,000 ARR. And when we hit that sometime, I think last year, it didn't seem like that much at all. And I think we sort of 10X'd it. And we'll probably end up 10Xing it again. Because uh, it's it's great fun. I don't think any of us want to give it up quite yet. Yeah, I think it's easy to say the grass is always greener, and you always think, oh, when I hit this milestone, we're going to be miraculously happier. Like, it doesn't really. Even if our revenue was double now, I don't think it would any, make any difference to our day to day lives. We'd probably have more problems because we'd have more users, more staff, more overhead. So, in fact, like we just want to make sure that we're growing at a pace where we are comfortable with the setup because you know i've i've seen it a lot of entrepreneurs um they, their business gets too big for them and it's, you know they they wish it was back to where it was at a certain point or they were happy at you know six figures a year sort of thing so we we don't really want to get to that point but you know we'll see i don't know so i usually end by asking guests to share some advice that they have with you know somebody who's maybe a little bit newer to business some tips for how they can you know build something successful. But since I've got both of you on, why don't I ask you, Jonathan, to give some advice to uh, somebody who's in your shoes, a a programmer with a full-time job who's interested in side projects but isn't quite sure how to get started. And Gareth, also, what would be your advice for someone who doesn't come from a technical background but wants to start a tech business? I'd say to anyone with a side project that's doing just okay and is perhaps thinking about going full-time on it to just set yourself a goal on when it's going to happen and stick to it. My goal with Email Octopus was always that it would be making enough money to cover my basic living expenses and that I'd actually be able to eat. And I think it took us about a year and a half to get to that point. And I also think that was okay. I really don't think you have to go all in to begin with. And in fact, if I'd have done so and taken a massive financial hit, I probably would have just given up and not actually validated the idea. So, yeah, it's okay to take it slow, but don't be afraid to commit. And if it doesn't work out, at least you'll have some great stories. So from a marketer's point of view, I've seen it before where marketers launch a software as a service business. And I just don't think it's possible without co-founder. I've seen plenty of friends, um, you know, use external developers. They don't understand the code they're writing. They don't even know if they're building something that's good, that something of value or if it's actually going to be good um so i think a lot of people go they just go to market try and find a developer they think it's going to be that's their route for them as a marketer um but i think every every marketer should find a co-founder that's on a similar level with them um make sure i mean the mistakes we made were not laying out our specific roles which i'd advise anyone to do in any partnership because having a co-founder is one of the hardest things you can do because you, there's so much friction. But as brothers, it sort of made a different, a different vibe. But it's still you're still going to have that friction. So I would 
definitely find a co-founder and also I would make sure you verify the product, even if you're a programmer or a marketer, just make sure, um, I mean, MVP is a classic thing in the startup world, but in my mind, it's a classic business thing. It, you know, are people using it and is it making money and how is it going to be profitable um, and recurring revenue. And the great thing with software, it's very tempting to get into it because it's recurring revenue. And that's been massively helpful for us. Um, you know, without recurring revenue, we wouldn't be here today um, and a lot of businesses wouldn't. Well, listen, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to have you and it's really cool always to have multiple guests, especially two brothers, so I can hear about how you guys interact with each other and compare it to my own situation. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about Email Octopus and about what the two of you guys are up to personally? Sure. Uh, so head to emailoctopus.com if you want to check out our email marketing. Uh, we also have our template pack available still for free at templates.emailoctopus.com. Uh, and my personal life, uh, to be honest, is, is still mainly for the programming. Um, but next year, I'm hoping to mix it up a bit and uh, go remote and move to Canada. That's the plan. So for me, you know, I do a lot of tweeting and I'm trying to get involved in um, the startup world and also different worlds um, around marketing. So if you do want to find me, I'm on Twitter. It's Gareth Ball. Um, I do a little bit of YouTube stuff. Um, nothing um, promotional or selling. It's just a bit more about my story and, you know, people might find it interesting. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely check out our blog, Email Octopus blog. We do share some cool case studies on there. Sign up. Um, we're not going to send you crap. It's all of value, no sell. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. Awesome. Cheers. Excellent. Thanks, Cortland. It's been a pleasure. See ya. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and they really help other people to discover the show, so thanks a ton for your support. In addition, if you are running an internet business, or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com forum. It's a great place to get help with pretty much any problem that you might encounter while growing your business, like how to come up with an idea or feedback on a product that you're working on. I try to spend a couple hours a day just answering questions and giving people feedback and getting to know everyone, so I really hope to see you there. That's ndhackers.com forum. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.